Hello, I'm Dr. Ian Wilkinson. I'm a consultant geriatrician down in the south of the UK, working in Surrey and Sussex Healthcare NHS Trust. I run a student-selected component uh, as part of the Brighton and Sussex Medical School course for the third-year medical students. And in this course, over an eight-week period, the students learn about and develop a series of podcasts uh, designed as a learning tool for other students. This current bunch of students, uh, we split the episode into two parts uh, to make it a little bit more manageable in terms of time. And the first of these is coming up now. So this is what we have coming up in this episode. As you can see, our fellow third year medical students were quite unsure of this value. Well, it's been a bloody roller coaster, mate. I've had really high highs and extremely low lows. Living with an amputation isn't always the best thing and some patients actually opt out of this option. They would often prefer to have palliative care rather than dealing with an amputated limb. And without further ado, I'll, I'll hand you over to the, the students. Hello, and welcome to the Everyday Medicine podcast. I'm Izzy, and I'm making this podcast with two other third-year medical students, Annabelle. Hi. And Caitlin. Hi. We're recording in our student house in Brighton in February 2019. Today, we are going to be talking about living with type 1 diabetes. We've decided to make this podcast because we feel like there is not enough teaching for medical students on patients' perspectives on living with chronic medical conditions. On today's podcast, we're going to be recapping the basics of type 1 diabetes. We want to appreciate the difficulties of living with it and want to learn how to improve our healthcare practice in the future in regards to type 1 diabetes. We thought it would be interesting to find out how much our fellow third year medical students already knew about living with diabetes, so we decided to ask them a few questions. How many people are living with type 1 diabetes in the UK currently? 5% of the population? I don't know. Probably quite a few, maybe like 10% of the population. Um, 10,000. <laughs> uh, 60,000. So actually, the number of people living in the UK with type 1 diabetes is 400,000, 29,000 of which are children. As you can see, our fellow third year medical students were quite unsure of this value. How do you think having type 1 diabetes would impact your social life? Well, it definitely makes socialising more difficult. You have to think about what activities you're going to be doing, how long you're out of the house, do you need to take insulin with you, do you need to eat beforehand, you can't just eat out at restaurants because you don't know sort of the carbohydrate makeup. So, um, yeah, you have to think far ahead and you can't spontaneously stay overnight if you don't have enough insulin, those kind of things. I guess it would impact your social life, like... If everyone's going out drinking, like that's going to have an impact. Um, if you want to go out for a big meal with your friends, you've got to kind of think about the implications of that. It probably impacts your life uh, regarding sort of socialising, like having to know when you've got to take your insulin or whatever. Um, as well, like going out um, or going socialising like to a meal or something like that, whether or not you need to take it beforehand or during. Uh, so I think it would be quite difficult going out for meals and things and you have to think about taking insulin um, as well as injecting in front of other people it might generate quite a lot of anxiety. Um, also, 
when you want to have a drink and go out and then you don't want to forget to take your insulin and then um <laughs> we're going to be hearing from someone who has type 1 diabetes and how it's impacted their social life later on in the podcast do you think having type 1 diabetes means you can't do certain jobs i think it depends on whose perspective you look at it from so if you look at it from the perspective of the patient they may think oh my diabetes is very well controlled i almost never have hypos they might not think that they have certain restrictions, but then if you look at it from an employer's or safety aspect, you'll think, oh, you, they don't really want to work with heavy machinery or a lot of driving or anything that's going to injure the worker if they do like lose consciousness or become uh, acutely unwell, like you do with hypos and type 1. I'd like to think that, no, having diabetes wouldn't affect like your ability to do jobs. But actually, if you've got, like pretty poor control or um, like neuropathy or something there probably are some things that you can't do probably jobs like emergency services like police or maybe like uh, firemen or something like that uh, or anything that involves a lot of like active stuff so maybe like a lifeguard um, I can't really think of anything else um, so I don't think you can be a taxi driver if you have type 1 diabetes because of insulin and other jobs where you have to drive. Um, I think potentially also in the army and maybe a lifeguard and um, like working heavy machinery and things like that. The Equality Act of 2010 protects people with type 1 diabetes from discrimination at work. However, there are still some jobs that are restricted for people with type 1 diabetes, such as being a pilot, a train driver or operating heavy machinery. The armed forces are also allowed to operate a blanket ban on people with type 1 diabetes on safety grounds. How common do you think type 1 diabetes is in children? So type 1 is obviously much more common in children than type 2. Um, and that is one of sort of the criteria of why it's diagnosed. I think it's probably affects maybe 15% of children, 20% of children. But that's a very mild guess. <laughs> I'm not really sure, to be honest. I genuinely have no idea. I'd say in terms of type 1 diabetes in children, it's probably within like the top 10 uh, conditions that affect children. I think type 1 diabetes is probably quite common in children. I think a lot of people that have it are usually diagnosed when they're quite young. As already mentioned, there are over 29,000 children living with type 1 diabetes in the UK. Type 1 diabetes is much more common in children than type 2 and accounts for 96% of the cases. The peak age for diagnosis of type 1 diabetes is between 10 and 14 years of age. However, lots of kids aren't diagnosed until they are very unwell and there is a need for increased awareness of symptoms and prompter diagnosis. So that was really fascinating to hear what other third-year medical students thought about living with diabetes. Yeah, it was really good to hear lots of different perspectives on it. The thing is, guys, I don't think I know enough about diabetes. Do you think it's time? Well, I think it's time. It's time for our... Knowledge Topper! Right, guys, Izzy's prepared an overview of type 1 diabetes for us and it's going to help us top up our knowledge and recap what type 1 diabetes is. 
So to start with, you're going to tell us a bit about the epidemiology. So there's a lot of geographical variation in the incidence of type 1 diabetes. It's much more common in Europeans and much less common in people of Asian origin. Worldwide, the incidence of type 1 diabetes is increasing by about 3% each year, but it's unknown what's causing this increase. Also, type 1 diabetes accounts for 5-10% to of all patients with diabetes. So what actually is type 1 diabetes? So type 1 diabetes is a chronic condition where the body is unable to produce insulin due to destruction of the beta cells in the pancreas. Insulin is a hormone that reduces your blood glucose after you eat to keep it at the optimum level. Without insulin, blood sugar levels can uncontrollably rise and can cause both short and long-term consequences. But how does beta cell destruction occur? It usually develops due to the autoimmune destruction of beta cells in the pancreas, where the beta cells usually produce the hormone insulin. Insulin enables utilisation of glucose in peripheral muscle and adipose tissue. Oh, so does um, beta cell destruction happen really quickly? No, actually. Beta cell destruction can occur at subclinical levels for months to years, as in cellulitis. It's only after 80-90% to of beta cells have been destroyed, hyperglycemia can occur, becoming type 1 diabetes. So what can happen if no insulin is produced? Other hormones are stimulated to try and counteract the effects of there being no insulin. These include glucagon, adrenaline, cortisol and growth hormone. These hormones promote gluconeogenesis, glycogenolysis and ketogenesis in the liver. As you'd expect, these can lead to problems and the patient may present to hospital with hyperglycemia and metabolic acidosis, also known as diabetic ketoacidosis. Patients have to inject insulin to replace the hormone they don't have, and blood sugar levels need monitoring often. Is it genetic? There are certain human leukocyte antigens, or HLA, gene polymorphisms which increase a patient's susceptibility to type 1 diabetes, or provide protection from it. In these susceptible individuals, it's thought environmental factors may trigger the destruction of pancreatic beta cells. Certain viruses have been found to have strong links to type 1 diabetes, with the strongest associations with congenital rubella syndrome and human enterovirus. Celiac disease shares the HLA genotype with type 1 diabetes, and celiac disease is much more common along those with type 1 diabetes. So, is it linked to type 2 diabetes at all? Type 1 diabetes is completely separate to type 2 diabetes, and insulin resistance has no role in the pathophysiology of type 1 diabetes. However, it is possible to develop insulin resistance, a feature of type 2 diabetes, on top of the type 1 diabetes, so you become resistant to replacement insulin you are getting as treatment for your type 1 diabetes. So, just to summarise, type 1 diabetes is a condition where there's autoimmune destruction of the beta cells in the pancreas, which causes a patient to stop producing insulin, and that can have many consequences. Insulinitis is the precursor to type 1 diabetes, and there are genetic and environmental links too. Over the past few weeks, we've been lucky enough to speak to another medical student, Flo, who actually lives with type 1 diabetes, and she's been kind enough to give us her insights. So Flo, how did you find out you had type 1 diabetes? I was 15 when I was diagnosed. I first noticed that I was thirsty all the time. I was filling up my water bottle at school what seemed like every half an hour and obviously going to the loo loads too. I lost quite a lot of weight and was constantly exhausted. 
I had a GP appointment but ended up cancelling it to go on an athletics competition instead. I think there was a bank holiday so I ended up going to an out-of-hours GP at the hospital over the weekend because my mum was really worried as I was looking pretty ill. I had googled the symptoms and they fit so I told the doctor I thought I had diabetes and she immediately told me I didn't. So. It was a bit awkward when she tested my blood sugar and it turned out I did. Luckily, I wasn't in DKA, but my blood sugar was pretty high. So those were the signs and symptoms that Flo was getting before she was diagnosed. So there was the thirst, lethargy and unintentional weight loss. But there were also others, so such as blood vision, going to the toilet more, especially at night, thrush that keeps coming back and cuts and grazes that won't heal. So when Flo went to the... GP to have a diabetes test that usually involves a urine test and blood glucose check. So if they think you might have diabetes they'll advise you to go to hospital straight away for an assessment um, and then blood test results will be done and you'll stay in hospital until you get the blood test results which is usually the same day. If you're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes a diabetes nurse will show you the things you need to do to start managing it such as testing your own blood glucose and how to inject insulin. So This is quite a lot to take in, especially if you've just received a diagnosis, you're suddenly being told that you have to have injections many times a day and monitor your blood glucose a lot. Another way that some people can first present with type 1 diabetes is presenting to A&E with diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. So this is the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in children with type 1 diabetes. So it's where there's a lack of insulin in the body which causes the body to break down fat for energy which then produces ketones. And DKA can also cause hyperglyce- DKA can also cause hyperglycemia or high blood sugar, and there's high levels of ketones in the blood and urine. So a little bit more about DKA. So the symptoms a patient may present with are all the same as presenting with type 1 diabetes, but also might be sick, have tummy pain, breath that smells fruity, often described as breath that smells like pear drops deep or fast breathing, confusion, and the patient may pass out. DKA DKA is a medical emergency and needs to be treated in hospital immediately. If you already have a type 1 diabetes diagnosis, certain things can make you more likely to have diabetic ketoacidosis, including having an infection such as urinary tract infection, flu or respiratory tract infection, not following treatment plans such as missing or omitting doses of insulin, an injury or surgery, taking certain medicines such as steroids, binge drinking, pregnancy and menstruation in women. So how has type 1 diabetes impacted your life? I would say it's a factor in most of the decisions I make. The first thing I do when I wake up is check my blood sugar. I have a Libra which is like a continuous glucose monitor and I probably scan that at least 15 times a day. I also have an insulin pump, which I'm really grateful for, but constantly having something attached to me isn't always great for my body image. As stated before, type 1 diabetes is treated with insulin. This can be given via injections or by an insulin pump like Flo has. Insulin can't be taken orally to lower blood sugar because stomach enzymes will break it down and prevent its action. So injections, um, as where you use a fine needle and a syringe or use an insulin pen to inject the insulin under your skin. The insulin pens look similar to like regular pens and they're available in disposable or refillable varieties. If you choose to use injections, you're probably going to need a mixture of insulin types to use throughout the day and the night. So you'll need to inject multiple times per day. They usually include a combination of long-acting insulins, 
that go on in the background and short acting insulins that work when you have some food. An insulin pump is a device that you wear. It's about the size of one of those old school Nokia brick mobile phones and it sits on the outside of your body. A tube connects a reservoir of insulin to a catheter that's inserted underneath the skin of your abdomen. This type of pump can be worn in a variety of ways, like on your waistband, you know, in your pocket, or you can have it in a specially designed pump belt. There's also a wireless pump option, which is where you wear a pod that houses the insulin reservoir on your body and it has a tiny catheter that's inserted underneath your skin. The insulin pod can be worn on your abdomen, lower back, on a leg or an arm. The programming is done with a wireless device that communicates with the pod. The insulin pumps are programmed to dispense a specific amount of rapid acting insulin automatically. This steady dose of insulin is known as your basal rate and it replaces whatever long acting insulin you were using before. When you eat, you can program the pump with the amount of carbohydrates you're about to eat and your current blood sugar, and it'll give you what's called the bolus dose, um, which covers your meal to correct your blood sugar once it's elevated. Insulin pumps aren't that common, but they're really good for young people who want to lead as normal a life as possible and achieve lots of flexibility. So this is how it worked really well for Flo. So Flo, are hypos a concern for you? Hypos are a major inconvenience because they really don't feel fun, but also interrupt what I'm doing. For a period of time shortly after I was diagnosed, I was consistently having several hypos a day and I didn't really have energy to do anything. Hypos can be a scary and stressful situation. Hypoglycemia happens when your blood glucose levels go too low, usually below 4 millimoles per litre. So hypos can happen when you take too much insulin or don't eat enough. Um, and it can also happen if you drink alcohol on an empty stomach. So the most common signs of a hypo are things like sweating, being anxious, um, finding it difficult to concentrate. So sort of things that we all experience when we feel hungry, basically. However, if a hypo goes untreated for too long, the brain is starved of energy and this can lead to seizures, comas and ultimately death. A mild hypo can be treated with 15 grams of rapid release glucose, so for instance a can of full sugar coke or six jelly babies. However, a serious hypo requires an in injection of glucagon to mobilise glycogen stored in the liver. This in turn increases plasma glucose. Alternatively, IV glucose can be given. And do you ever find that high blood sugar is a problem for you? High blood sugar makes me really tired and grumpy, so I'm never particularly productive if I'm high, which can be an issue if I have loads of uni work to do. We've already covered the short-term complications of high blood sugar, such as being really thirsty and tired, and the more serious one of DKA. There are also longer-term complications of chronic hypoglycemia, like nephropathy, neuropathy and retinopathy. It's virtually impossible for someone with type 1 diabetes to keep perfect control of their blood sugar all the time. And it's important to be able to recognise when your blood sugar is high and have methods for dealing with it. Do you think diabetes stops you from doing anything? I don't think diabetes has really stopped me from doing anything. I just have to change how I go about some things. For example, I can drive. I just have to make sure I check my blood sugar beforehand. So with diabetes, monitoring is obviously very important. So... One sort of monitoring is to check blood glucose levels, um, which is a regular part of living with diabetes, which involves pricking your finger and testing the blood. Um, and this has to be done many times throughout the day. So this is done before meals, usually a few hours after meals as well. Um, always before, during and after exercise and before bed, because you don't want to have a hypo in the night. 
Also legally, if you drive, you have to check your blood glucose levels no longer than two hours before you drive and check your blood every two hours if you're on a long journey. And you also do have to let the DVLA know you have diabetes. So there are also other methods of monitoring glucose. Flo said she used Libra, which measures glucose levels continuously throughout the day by measuring the amount of glucose in interstitial fluid. Because they're in interstitial fluid and not directly measuring the blood, these readings are often a few minutes behind the blood glucose readings, but often quite useful to see trends of glucose levels, so especially to see what happens overnight. This isn't a complete substitute for finger prick checks, as they still need to be done when patient drives, or you may need additional monitoring during a hypo. This involves a sensor which is stuck to the patient's arm, which is about the size of a £2 coin, and a reader which scans the sensor to see the sugar levels. It is available on the NHS in some areas, but otherwise some patients have to buy them, which costs around £50 for a sensor, which does have to be replaced every two weeks. So this kind of shows the, shows the financial burdens that living with diabetes may have. So this shows the financial burdens that living with diabetes may have. Has having diabetes impacted your relationship with food? Diabetes has had a big impact on my relationship with food. I can eat whatever I want, I just need to count the carbs in order to give myself the right amount of insulin. But there's a lot of looking at packets and weighing out stuff, so it's hard to be spontaneous. There's so much information to process. Blood sugar, the carb content, the insulin I have on board, my carb to insulin ratio, if I'm planning on exercising later, and all that jazz. So it's pretty easy to get fed up and burnt out. Something about living with diabetes that's often forgotten is the fact that counting carbs needs to happen every meal. So patients need to know how much carbs they're eating and drinking to help manage their glucose levels by matching the food intake to the insulin dose. But this does mean that insulin treatments can be a little bit more flexible. It can take quite a while to get used to, so there are lots of apps and courses online available. But I think most patients or most people living with diabetes tend to understand the amount of carbs or the carb content in foods they eat and usually have a good idea of how much insulin to inject. How has diabetes affected your social life? From my perspective, it doesn't really have an impact on my social life. I'm really open with the fact that I have type 1 diabetes, but sometimes it can be a bit awkward telling people, especially in a situation like a first date. Also, I do have to be more careful when I'm drinking, because there is a risk of having a serious hypo overnight, and glucocon wouldn't be any help at all. In basic terms, when you consume alcohol, the processes in your liver are diverted toward clearing the alcohol out of your system. This means that glucagon would not be able to stimulate sufficient conversion of glycogen into glucose by the liver. How has your experience with healthcare professionals been regarding your type 1 diabetes? Is there anything that could be improved? Um, I'd say I've mostly had positive experiences. Obviously my first encounter wasn't that great because she flat out told me I didn't have diabetes before she'd even taken a history or checked my blood glucose. I tend to have more of an issue when I'm talking to healthcare professionals in a setting outside of the diabetes clinic because they don't really get what living with diabetes is like. Quite a few times someone has seen that my blood sugar is a bit high and then from that assumed that I must have awful control. I think some doctors have a bit of a black and white attitude when it comes to diabetes control. Either it's good or it's bad and you're non-compliant. In reality it's a 24-7 job and it's impossible to get it right 100% of the time. 
It's probably also worth mentioning that scare tactics don't tend to work. Most people with diabetes are very aware of potential complications. In my opinion, telling someone that they're going to go blind or their kidneys are going to fail and try to scare them into engaging with treatment is the wrong way to go about it. I much prefer healthcare professionals who acknowledge the psychological burden and are really supportive. Thanks Flo, that was really interesting. Thanks so much Flo for having a chat with us. It's been really useful and I feel like I've learned a lot of new and interesting things. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really illuminating to hear your perspective, especially in regards to your experiences with healthcare professionals and your attitudes to scaremongering tactics. So following on from this, me and Annabelle decided to take a trip to the Audrey Edmonton building in Brighton to speak to an expert on helping people cope with their type 1 diabetes. I'm here with Elaine McAninch, who's a dietitian who's previously worked with patients with diabetes and we wanted to get her expert opinion. So, as an expert in the field of diabetes and nutrition, what top tips do you have for other healthcare professionals in helping type 1 diabetic patients manage their condition? So, um, people with type 1 diabetes live with diabetes for their whole lives and when they come to see you as a healthcare professional, it's just a five minute snapshot into that. So, they're the people who live with the condition. you, it's very important as a healthcare professional that you respect that and you are non-judgmental with your communication and take the time to find out a little bit more of where they're coming from and what they're trying with their treatment um, and what's working for them. So so using uh, language that's collaborative, so asking lots of questions as what's going on with your diabetes at the moment? Talk me through what you've been trying out. Uh, how's your blood sugars looking? What's your thoughts? That kind of collaborative language, I think, is really, really crucial, particularly for type 1 diabetes that has such a um, onus, not on what, what can be prescribed, but how uh, patients manage that day to day. Uh, also as well, uh, you, you know, people with type 1 diabetes are absolutely experts at their condition, a lot more so than many of the doctors that they meet. So working with your patient, but um, don't forget the rest of the team as well. For example, dietitians, psychologists, there's lots of uh, community services, exercise schemes, um, cookery classes there's lots of things that you can do with social prescribing to help with your patients so, so just working with your patients to think a bit more out of the box a little bit more away from the medical model thank you for your insight elaine that's going to be really helpful for our future practice as medical students the curriculum tends to help us understand acute medical conditions and how to treat them On the wards, we tend to see patients who have been admitted for treatment of acute illnesses, but we don't see patients in their day-to-day life and the impacts their chronic medical condition may have on their lives. As healthcare professionals, we need to understand that often, patients know the implications of their conditions better than we might, and they tend to understand more how certain things impact them and their condition on a daily basis. So just to recap what we've learned in this podcast, We have identified what medical students currently know about living with type 1 diabetes and had a knowledge top up. We also have spoken to Flo, a person living with diabetes, and have found out about how she was diagnosed with diabetes, how living with diabetes has impacted her life in many ways, including monitoring and treatments, and found out what she wanted healthcare professionals to be aware of when treating patients with diabetes. We also spoke to Elaine and had her input about the importance of collaborative management with patients and healthcare professionals and to understand how much patients do know about their own condition. Thanks so much for listening to the Everyday Medicine podcast. 
I'd like to say a huge thank you to our guests, Flo and Elaine, for their input. We'd also like to thank our fellow medical students for taking part and giving up their time. We hope you've enjoyed listening and feel more confident on the topic of type 1 diabetes. We'd quickly like to thank Dr Ian Wilkinson for running this SSC and facilitating us in making this podcast. The music and sounds in this podcast were sourced from the BBC Sound Effect Library, Ben Sound Royalty Free Music, and the intro music and jingle was an original composition by Caitlin Rock. Hey, my name is Nathan and I'm a third year medical student here in Brighton. Welcome to my podcast and thank you very much for listening. Today we're going to talk about all things ECT, which stands for electroconvulsive therapy. It's a topic that's not really discussed much in our lectures, um, so I thought it would be a good idea to talk about this in a podcast. And you might be asking, what is ECT? So it's a treatment used as a last resort, reserved only for very severe mental health issues such as life-threatening depression or cases where medication hasn't worked in the way it should and what basically happens is the electric currents pass through the brain during these epileptic seizures and it can only be prescribed a psychiatrist. So the procedure has been quite controversial in the past because of its history and it's again controversial up until even up until now. So back in the day patients had ECT the patient was actually awake during the procedure and anaesthetic wasn't used at all. So, and it was used more as a punishment rather than a treatment and often done without consent. So you can see why there's some issues. As with all mental health issues, there's always a stigma involved um, that these negative connotations are attached to these um, illnesses because we don't know much about them. Um, and same with ECT. There is a negative connotation or negative sort of image portrayed about ECT. Um, just because we might not know much about it. And again, it's linked in with the perception in the media because um, the media can often put stigma on certain things like mental health issues and ECT. Um, so, for example, you have the 1975 film One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest, where the page of ECT isn't actually so in the most positive of lights. So, this podcast is aiming to address these things. And now I'll be interviewing Dr. Simon Baker, a consultant psychiatrist here in Brighton, talking about his thoughts and personal experiences with ECT. What is your experience of ECT? Well, um, I have prescribed ECT uh, to a number of patients over the years. Not so much recently because my job has changed. I now work uh, entirely in the community. Um, but in the past, when I used to have inpatients as well as uh, community patients, we would use it uh, from time to time. Um, it's it's a treatment that is restricted for more severe depression uh, that hasn't responded to other treatments. Uh, my experience over the years has been that uh, it is an effective treatment under those circumstances, uh, and often uh, even the most severely depressed patients they have a good response. And can you think of any examples of patients who've had ECT? Well, the last patient that I can recall 
was a community patient here. Um, he was a man who, over the years, had had a number of episodes where he'd uh, briefly become elated and then be followed by a very prolonged depression of lasting six to 12 months. Uh, and he'd had numerous trials of medical treatment, but nothing had proved effective. And I saw him after a similar relapse. He had been elevated for <clears throat> a couple of weeks, and then it had slipped into a depression. And his wife was very concerned that this would again go on for a very long time. So I broached the subject of ECG, ECT with them. And uh, at first they were very rather shocked and horrified at the thought of it. Um, and I suggested that they should uh, look at the Royal College uh, website and read a bit about it. Uh, and when they came to see me a few weeks later, rather to my surprise, they were very enthusiastic about uh, a course of treatment. So we arranged it uh, on an outpatient basis. And I was very pleased that over the next few weeks, he made a good recovery. Um, and his wife became an advocate for treatment. And how do patients typically describe them? What do they experience during the course of ECT? Well, the treatment itself involves a brief anaesthetic during the course of which you would administer the electrical current, which induces a seizure activity. Uh, the patient is anaesthetized, so they're not aware of anything. When they recover from the anaesthetic, they will have some postictal symptoms. They may be a bit confused, have a bit of a headache, and that will tend to resolve over um, the next few hours. Um, Many of the patients don't remember very much during the course of the treatment. We know that uh, the treatment itself can impair memory for that period. And similarly, patients who are profoundly depressed often do have cognitive impairment. The main complaint that, or the main concern that patients have is of impaired memory. And there is no doubt that some patients will have a degree of impairment of their memory of previous events in their life. Um, but, uh, to my knowledge, there's no evidence that that continues in the future. Once you've recovered from the depression and completed the course of ECT, you're able to remember things as before. Thank you, Dr. Baker. I thought it was quite helpful to hear a psychiatrist's opinion, especially from one who's had a previous experience of ECT before. I found it quite interesting when I was talking about one of his patients for whom he prescribed ECT, um, how they went off. Um, and did quite detailed research um, on ECT and how they found positive um, things about the experience and about the evidence for ECT. And I guess it goes to show that how much public perception has changed on ECT um, from many years ago. So I'll now be interviewing someone who's actually had ECT um, and he'll be talking about his experience with ECT and how it felt. So tell us about yourself. Well, I'm 62 this is years Dave, old. Dave, one of Dr. Baker's patients. Wife and two amazing kids. That's my life, really. <laughs> oh, and I work as an accountant, but I usually leave that out. <laughs> so tell us about your your journey, Dave. Well, it's been a bloody roller coaster, mate. Honestly, I've been bipolar for as long as I can remember now. 
I've had really high highs and extremely low lows, if you know what I mean. I go from feeling absolutely on top of the world for a while to feeling like I didn't want to be around at all. It was so bizarre. I remember once I was so happy, I went out and spent months wages on a watch for myself. Safe to say the missus wasn't pleased. <laughs> so how did you get better then? Well, all the medications the doctor gave me didn't seem to work. I was trying for ages, and it seemed like there was no cure in sight. ECT definitely changed things for me. Really? So, was it what you expected then? No, not at all. When my doctor suggested it, I was horrified. It sounded absolutely horrible. But when my wife and I went away to read up about it, it did not sound as bad as I thought. And the actual experience confirmed that. Wow. So, how did the whole process actually feel then? It didn't feel much at all, I'll be honest. I was asleep the whole time, so I couldn't feel the shocks. I did feel quite drowsy afterwards and had a bit of a headache, but that was it really. My wife does say that my memory's gone a bit funny during the course of ECT, but I didn't remember much. When I completed the course, it didn't seem to last for long. Wow. That's interesting. So, are you happy that you tried um, ECT? Yeah, honestly, it changed everything for me. It just didn't feel like I did before. I felt so much better. It's just hard to explain. I would definitely recommend it for anyone in my position or similar. Thank you very much, Dave. It's so encouraging to hear that story from Dave and his sports experiences with ECT. Again, it just goes to show what difference ECT can actually make and how far it's evolved as a treatment. That's all we have time for, unfortunately. Thanks for tuning in with me to learn more about ECT. Special thanks to Dr. Simon Baker for joining me in my podcast. All music used in this podcast is courtesy of Kevin McLeod of Incompetent Music. Patient story used was fictional and adapted for the purpose of this podcast. Thanks again for listening and join me in my quest to find more about ECT. Bye. Hello and welcome to the 5 Minute Medic. My name is Pashmina. I'll be taking you through a series of podcasts that will help you to revise and cram information in just before your awards and just before your placements and possibly even just before your exams. Today I'll be discussing acute pancreatitis. So what is acute pancreatitis? Well the name suggests that it's an itis, so it's an inflammatory disorder of the pancreas. So in order to understand some of the signs and symptoms, we have to understand some of the anatomy and physiology. The common bile duct joins on to the pancreatic duct at the ampulla of vata. This then secretes digestive enzymes into the second part of the duodenum. This forms part of the excrement function of the pancreas. Now to the etiology. In order to remember the common causes of pancreatitis, it's useful to remember the mnemonic I get smashed. I for idiopathic, G for gallstones, E for ethanol, T for trauma, S for steroids, M for mumps and malignancy, A for autoimmune, S for scorpion stings, H for hypercalcemia or hypertriglyceridemia, E for ERCP, and D for drugs.
Pancreatic duct obstruction underlies most of these causes. ACE in our cells. These contain zymogen granules that contain enzymes that are not yet activated. When there's an obstruction to the release of zymogen granules, the inactivated enzymes then become activated. This then leads to the auto-destruction of the pancreatic tissue and also the surrounding tissue. Let's quickly move on to the classifications. I'm just going to go through some of the severity scales and the morphology types of pancreatitis. In terms of severity, you can have mild, moderate or severe forms. In the mild form, you get no pancreatic necrosis or necrosis to the surrounding tissue and no organ failure. Organ failure can include respiratory, cardiovascular and renal failure. The moderate form has a sterile necrosis and has transient organ failure, transient because it only lasts up to 48 hours. The severe form is the infective form and has persistent organ failure that lasts for greater than 48 hours. In terms of classification by morphology, you'll hear two common types. There's interstitial edematous pancreatitis and necrotizing pancreatitis. Necrotizing pancreatitis obviously has necrosis, whereas interstitial edematous pancreatitis often doesn't. Due to the edema, the edematous form of pancreatitis will be very apparent on a CTIV contrast scan, whereas necrotizing pancreatitis will not. Diagnosis. The common diagnostic features are nausea and vomiting, anorexia, abdominal pain, and tachycardia. The main investigations that we'd look at are serum amylase, the AST to ALT ratio, the FBC, the CRP, hematocrit. If you suspect acute pancreatitis, you would normally expect a serum amylase three times the upper limit of the normal range. The AST to ALT ratio. These are liver enzymes. Three times the upper limit of normal predicts gallstone etiology. On the full blood count, we might see raised leukocytes. Hematocrit is the ratio between the red blood cells and the volume of blood. An elevated hematocrit indicates dehydration because there's a higher ratio of red blood cells to the actual volume. And inversely, a low hematocrit is a result of hemorrhage. These can both occur in acute pancreatitis. CRP is an inflammatory marker. It's always raised in inflammation. Then we've got the imaging. An abdominal plane x-ray is abnormal in two-thirds of patients. An ultrasound, however, can specifically show us if there are biliary causes. The gold standard, however, is the abdominal CT scan. So you may see findings of diffuse or segmental enlargement of the pancreas. MRCP is magnetic resonance cholangiopancreatography. This is a really good form of a non-invasive approach. ERCP has a limited diagnostic use and is often used in intervention purposes. Management. In terms of management, we can split this up into pharmacology, nutritional management, and interventional management. In terms of the drugs, we'd want to give pain management and analgesia straight away. We'd also offer fluid resuscitation. Broad-spectrum antibiotics can be used. It's used as a prophylactic agent and can also be used if cholecystitis and gallstone etiology is the cause. We'd also have to think about calcium and magnesium replacement and vitamin and mineral replacement. Nutritional management. The conventional management of acute pancreatitis is actually nail by mouth. This approach is actually based on the hypothesis that if you give someone any food, then this will induce the early phase of acute pancreatitis again. Intervention. In a gallstone etiology, we'd offer a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. However, if the patient cannot tolerate surgery, we can also offer endoscopic sphincterotomy. This allows to effectively stent the sphincter of ODI. If we diagnose infective pancreatic necrosis, we could offer something such as percutaneous catheter drainage. Following that, we would go on to something called a necrosectomy. This allows us to take out parts of the pancreas that are dead. So we have to replace some of the excrement function and offer the patient something called crayon, which is a replacement of the digestive enzymes. So there you have it, acute pancreatitis. So you must be bored of all of this clinical information, so I'm just going to lighten the mood up a bit and tell you a really random fact. 
So did you know that snakes can actually help predict earthquakes? They can sense a coming earthquake from about 75 miles away and about five days before it even happens. There we go. <laughs> right. As this is a special 10 minute episode, I'll be covering two topics. The next topic will be critical limb ischemia. Critical limb ischemia is a severe obstruction of the arteries, which markedly reduces the blood flow to the extremities. This condition is at the most severe end of the spectrum for peripheral arterial disease, and this is caused by atherosclerosis. Risk factors. These are exactly the same as the risk factors for peripheral arterial disease, and very similar to the risk factors for coronary artery disease. These include smoking, diabetes, overweight or obesity, sedentary lifestyle, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and a family history of vascular disease, as well as age. The risk factors are fairly easy to think about in terms of the modification. Smoking, smoking cessation, diabetes, aggressive control of hyperglycemia, high cholesterol, high dose statin therapy, overweight, obesity or sedentary lifestyle can be covered with regular exercise regimes, and high blood pressure we can solve with these exercise regimes, diet and also looking at intensive antihypertensive treatment. Signs and symptoms. So we'll get our signs and symptoms from our history and our examination of the patient. In terms of the history, the patient may have a preceding history of intermittent calf claudication. When the pain gets really bad, there is severe pain or numbness in the legs and feet at rest. On examination, so the lack of blood flow causes the following. A noticeable decrease in the temperature of the lower legs, foot discoloration, foot infections, ulcers that might not heal or heal very slowly, gangrene, shiny, smooth, dry skin in the legs or feet, thickening of the toenails, and also absent or diminished pulses in the legs and feet. Investigations. Firstly, investigations might not actually be needed. If critical limb ischemia is suspected on the grounds of a simple but thorough history and examination, urgent onward referral is indicated. In terms of bedside investigations, we can look at the ankle brachial pressure index, or the ABPI, and the toe pressures. So the ABPI is calculated by taking the ankle pressures and dividing them by the blood pressures in the arm. So a reading above 1.2 might actually indicate abnormally hard vessels, so calcification. Anything between 1 and 1.2 is normal. And severe arterial disease and claudication occurs at ABPIs below 0.5. The toe pressure have the advantage of being more representative of the perfusion of the distal extremity and normally if you get ischemic rest pain then the toe pressure would be something below 30 millimeters of mercury. Vascular imaging. In terms of vascular imaging we have a couple of options. We have duplex, MRA, CTA and angiography. Duplex ultrasound is very good at showing real-time information about the blood flow through a vessel. MRA avoids the need for ionizing radiation but it does require contrast. CT angiogram has the disadvantage that it does require ionizing radiation and could be potentially nephrotoxic in the contrast media. Normally for diagnosis, angiography isn't really done as it's quite an invasive procedure and requires cannulation of the femoral vessels to inject contrast. Now let's move on to the management. So firstly, general management and medication. These are things that we've already mentioned that help to reduce the risk factors such as aggressive antihypertensives endovascular treatments. So all of these procedures involve inserting a catheter into the artery in the groin. So we've got angioplasty, laser atherectomy, directional atherectomy. Angioplasty involves placing small balloons introduced with a catheter into an artery. As the balloon is inflated, the artery inflates and stretches. This improves the blood flow and normally a stent is applied to maintain the expanded artery. Laser atherectomy uses laser probes to vaporize small bits of plaques 
and directional arthrectomy is a similar procedure that involves removing the plaque by inserting a catheter with a rotating cutting blade directly into the artery. So the next thing we would try, if the endovascular and the general management hasn't solved things, is arterial surgery. This involves removing or bypassing the arterial disease with either a vein from the patient or a synthetic graft. And in some cases, the surgeon can actually cut open the artery and scrape out all of the plaque. And then we've got amputation. Living with an amputation isn't always the best thing, and some patients actually opt out of this option. They would often prefer to have palliative care rather than dealing with an amputated limb. So that brings us to the end of our episode on critical limb ischemia. I'd like to ask a question after each episode for you to think about in order to have some active recall. For acute pancreatitis, can you state and describe the mnemonic to list the causes for acute pancreatitis? All of the sounds in this podcast have a courtesy of Kevin MacLeod at Incomputech uh, or the BBC Sound Archive for use for educational purposes only. There's a feedback form for these podcasts which is available at www.thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk and some of them also come with show notes which are available in the same spot. Uh, if you come along to the tab at the top and head to BSMS Podcasts. <laughs>